Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Lord God, your word is amazing. Uh, there's so much in it that uh, we uh, we don't understand. We ask that you'd be here this morning to illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Help us to learn everything you have for us today. Be with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Quick program announcements. Uh, one or two. We um, are only working with one camera today because Dr. Bob isn't here. So it's going to be relatively simple. But that means the camera is only on me all the time. So usually when you're speaking or asking a question, making a comment, the camera will, will have a camera on you. And then for the Zoom people or later on YouTube, you'll be on the video. But not today. So if you say something, if you want to use your question, please identify yourself, say your name. You might assume everyone knows my voice. I no need to do that, but for posterity, please kind of announce your name and we'll go from there. Uh, but it'd be a relatively simple format today. So today we're going to talk about Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs. And let's dive right in. And Rex, if you could read for me from the screen, we need to get you a microphone. The Professor's Delusionment. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? All things are wearisome, more than one can say. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Okay, thanks, Rex. Bright and cheerful. Here's, here's what we're going to do today. Um, quick overview of, of uh, what we'll talk about. We'll talk about Ecclesiastes basically in three sections. We'll talk about the professor's disillusionment. And by the way, uh, your version might call him the teacher, might call him the preacher. Uh, some versions say the, the professor. I'm going to stick with professor. Uh, most people think that the author of the book is Solomon. He doesn't self-identify as Solomon, but he does say, I was king in Jerusalem, son of David, filled with wisdom. Most people say, yeah, that's Solomon. So actually the church is, there hasn't been that much dispute about the authorship. But I'll call him Solomon or the professor. That first section will kind of be an overview of the whole book. And then we'll talk about, uh, in section B, the professor's attempts to find meaning in three ways. Achievement, causes, and pleasure. Talk about each of those. And then the professor's exciting conclusion. And then we'll break at that point. And if I go straight through, through those three sections, that will be less than an hour, probably. Which leaves lots of time at the end for questions, comments, conversation, all that stuff. But then I do want to spend about five minutes, and probably not much more than that, on Song of Solomon. Just a few minutes on that. And if they really have a lot of time, I've got an appendix here. There's a bunch of uh, nuggets of wisdom in Ecclesiastes, things that just sound like Proverbs, some of which are interesting, some of which are hard to understand. And I've got a few of those. We could talk about those, too. So we'll see how it goes. The professor's disillusionment. If you know one factoid about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's probably this, that the phrase, the phrase that keeps coming up in this book is under the sun. But if you didn't know that, and you were reading Ecclesiastes for the first time this week, and you've never read Ecclesiastes before, you probably read through it and said, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? It says life is meaningless, life is pointless, death ends everything. 
human beings are no different than animals. It's, it's like, it seems antithetical to everything else that's in the Bible. You might think then you'd be right. It seems like it's the opposite of what's in the Bible. So the key, of course, and I probably most of you have heard this, is the phrase under the sun, which I think appears in this book 37 times and nowhere else in the Bible. And of course, what that means is that the author is looking at things under the sun, without the heavenlies, as if there's no supernatural. All we have is a natural world. And then say, if that's the case, how do we make sense of this world? How do we find meaning in this world? Uh, and then, of course, his conclusion is, well, in that case, there is no meaning in this world. So I think that's very helpful. And that really helps understand the book. And you say, ah, OK, now that I know that, I can understand the book because it's this perspective other than uh, the rest of the Bible, which, of course, uh, assumes that uh, God exists and, and all the rest. And that's what makes this book different. But that's that's a good explanation. But it's a little bit a little bit unsatisfactory because this book is not like the book of Esther, where God isn't mentioned at all. The author of Ecclesiastes mentions God again and again and again, sprinkled throughout the book. And so you say, OK, so it's not like he doesn't believe in God. He does believe in God. But then he talks as if there is no God. So people say, well, how do you make sense of that? And one of the ways that commentators have made sense of that is they say, well, it's like it's like a play. It's like a one man show where he takes the role of the professor to say, well, what would the world look like if there was no God? So I was just looking under the sun. Oh, it's all meaningless. And then he steps aside like a narrator in a play, breaks character, steps aside, and says, you do know you have to keep God's commandments, right? And he goes back into character. Oh, it's all meaningless. Oh, but of course, you know, obeying God is really important. And, and the analogy that I think helps me is if you think of this under the sun thing, let me give you a metaphor that's close to that. Shouldn't be hard here in Northeast Ohio. Think of a, think of cloud cover. Think of a sheet of gray overcast. And Solomon is like someone flying below that sheet of overcast saying, I'm going to explain this world completely under the overcast and look at what I see, just this natural world with no supernatural, no heavenlies whatsoever. But then every once in a while, he comes above the clouds and looks up and makes a comment that he flies below the clouds. And that's actually kind of what makes Ecclesiastes exciting, challenging, difficult, but fun to read and understand because he's constantly flying above and below the clouds. So, Ray, you have this verse in Ecclesiastes Three, let's get a microphone. To... So just, just read verse 17. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Okay, so he's above the clouds, right? And that's and that's that verse, chapter three, verse 17, loaded with supernatural meaning. There's a God. This God has a moral code. That moral code applies to all creation, whether whether you know about it or agree with it or not. God will judge everybody, presumably in an afterlife. I mean, there's a lot of meaning in there. That's that's chapter three, verse 17 above the clouds. Now read 18. Very next verse. I also thought as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Keep going. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. Right, right. So he's doing so well, <laughs> flying above the clouds, talking about God, the stupid God, the judgment, all this, and then right below the clouds saying, ah, oh, we're just like the animals. There's no difference. It's all meaningless. So what? So he's here. Let me click this button here. He's a narrator breaking character. He's coming up above the clouds from time to time. And so when you look at this book, I think the best thing we'll do, and we'll do a little of this today, 
you say, how do I understand that? Because above the clouds and below the clouds, you have to interpret scripture with scripture to make sense of it, to really interpret it. We'll try, we'll try some of that today. So that's the key to the book. The thrust of the book is the impossibility of optimistic secularism. And you might say that this book, it may be the most relevant book in the Bible for our times, because for most of human civilization, most of human history, civilizations generally have been built around a coherent view of the supernatural, a shared view, a shared religion. It, it, whatever little civilization it was, people had a common worldview, and we're trying something different in Western society. We're trying a, a, a completely pluralistic worldview that says no one knows, and it's increasingly secularized. So people will say, I'm a hard and fast atheist. I do not believe in God. Not many say that, but some definitely do. Others will say, well, I'm agnostic. Who knows? Who cares? But functionally, I live as if there's no God, because who can know? But increasingly, we live in a society that says our origin was a complete evolutionary accident. Our destiny is dust, death. But at the same time, there's so much to live for. We should be optimistic. <laughs> we should change the planet and make it a better place for this next generation. We got to care about these things. And we got to look on the, always look on the bright side of life. And Solomon, the thrust of this book is to say, boy, you really haven't thought this through, have you? <laughs> Those are two completely incompatible beliefs. If you really believed in a secular mindset, if you really believed and thought that through, what the, under the sun, right? There's no, there's no supernatural. This is it. Your origin is just an evolutionary accident. Your de destiny is dust. If that's really true, that your only logical conclusion is utter and total despair. In fact, Pat and I were just talking about this. These French, the only people, the philosophy group that really, really thought this through were the existentialists in the mid-20th century. And the existentialists really thought this through, and they said, look, there is nothing out there. There is nothing. In that case, there's no morality. There's no hope. There is nothing out there. Get used to it. And, and one of them said, if that's true, the only logical conclusion of all philosophy is suicide. Because life is hard. Why go on? Why do it at all? That's logical thinking. It's not right, but it's logical thinking. But most people don't do that. They hold, everyone around us holds two completely incompatible beliefs. They'll say, oh, yeah, it's all, it's just, this only this natural world, but I'm filled with hope for tomorrow. But Solomon says, think this through with me. That does not work. That does not compute. That's the thrust of the book. That's the thrust. The gift of the book is disillusionment. The gift of the book is disillusionment. So traditionally, if you have a non-Christian neighbor or friend that gets interested in spiritual things, you would hand them, they say, I'm, I'm curious about these things. You say, well, you know what? Let me just read the book of John. You hand them the book of John. And for centuries, we've done this as Christians. You say, just read the book of John and we'll come back and talk about it. That's a really good place to start. I highly recommend that. Let's just read a chapter. Let's get together and talk about that. Read the next chapter. Let's get together and talk about that. And the word of God will speak. But you might say a more a relevant book for today is Ecclesiastes, because the gift of Ecclesiastes is disillusionment. Or you say someone could read it. You would hope that it would go like this. They would read this and say, you're right. This is the right. There is my life is pointless. There is no without God. My life is hopeless. And that they would turn to you as a believer and say, why don't you give me a reason for the hope that resides inside you? And you will be able to lead them to saving faith in Christ. So Ecclesiastes is so relevant for today. Uh, and that gift of Ecclesiastes is disillusionment. The gift for the non-Christian. So the Holy Spirit could use that. But 
if we stop right there, you will think the book of Ecclesiastes is really great for someone else. And there's a danger in that. You'll be like, uh, it's an old German joke my mom used to tell. And it was said, this little old lady leaves church. And her husband says, how did you like the sermon? And she says, oh, it was excellent. And he says, why? Why did you like it? And she said, I was so glad Frau Schmidt was here to hear that today. She really gave it to her. And that's kind of what we do. Right? You go to church, this is a powerful sermon. It's a powerful book. I'm so glad someone else can learn from this. But there's so much in Ecclesiastes for us. So I'm going to linger on this point for a little bit before we go on to the other points. Because if we don't get this right, you'll think it's irrelevant. I want to show you how it's relevant to us. You can be a Christian, you can be a believer, you can be a true believer and still think your life stinks. You still say, well, you know, life just didn't work out for me. Life worked out for other people, but not for me. And you could do that, you could do that a couple of different distinct ways. I just thought of a couple. One is just sheer jealousy. You could say, well, you know, Lord, I've been following you all these years. How come, look at that house. How did they get that house? Look at the car, he, look at the car he's driving. How much does that car cost? I can't afford that car. What the heck? You, you can just be sheer jealousy, sheer envy, right? That's, that's just one. And by the way, it's not just physical things. You could say, how come their marriage seems so healthy? Look at their kids. Their kids turned out great. Lord, we've been following you all this time. We've been praying about our kids all this time. What happened? You could sit there and say, life stinks. That's pure jealousy. Or maybe it's not jealousy. Here's another one. I got this from the Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. Glory Days. A lot of wisdom in that from, from Bruce. He's talking about, he starts off talking about a friend in high school, talks about his high school, he was a baseball player in high school and how great that was, right? So you could say, oh, you're talking about those days going by. It was so great back then. It doesn't have to be that, just talking about high school days. You could say, look, life was great until I got fired. Well, life was great until my wife left me. Right? Life was great until I had all this back pain. You, there's all kinds of ways to say life used to be great. It was fine. I wasn't complaining. Life stinks now. So you could do jealousy. You could do glory days. Here's another one. This is not glory days. It's brush with glory. Almost had it. We almost, didn't we almost have it all? Came close. So close. Brush with glory. So I'll tell you a story of my own. Confessionally, when I was uh, working in New York as a much younger man, I had a job offer to be an investment banker at Goldman Sachs. And well, that may mean nothing to you, but to go, in my finance world, Goldman Sachs is like the center of the universe. That is like you played uh, uh, Little League your whole life, and now you got the offer to pitch for your favorite baseball team. Like, that's it. I turned him down. And for years, I'm okay now, but for years, look, praise the Lord for what he saved me from, right? I'm, I'm enough of a jerk as it is, right? Praise the Lord. But, but for years, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm, this is not hyperbole, not exaggerating. I'd wake up. Sometimes I would sit upright, and I'd say, my God, my God, what did I have done? What did I do? Who turns down an offer from Goldman Sachs? What kind of idiot <laughs> turns down an offer? That's like saying, you know, anyway. So I've told that story uh, again and again to just because it's so painful. And what I found was I thought what I thought was my little personal hell is really much more common than I thought. 
And I've talked to, I have had so many conversations with men who say, oh yeah, me too. Came so close, almost. I played golf with a guy who almost went pro. I mean, almost PGA Tour pro. His golf game is astonishing. He, he, he's every par five he's on and on and two. It's a shot. Maybe you guys all, you, that's the way you guys all golf. You're like, yeah, who does it? But I was like, oh my gosh, again, not again. That's incredible. And I'm like smiling, look over at him, angry. And I know what he's thinking because we've talked about it. It's like, yeah, yeah, not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. Yeah, I'm on in two, but I have a 20 foot putt. Not good enough. Like, I would kill for that. Right? Not good enough. So close, so close, so close. It just eats at him. Just has so many conversations I have with men who are like this. And I thought, like I said, I thought it was kind of a unique experience. I think it's a much more common experience than I thought. There's a poem in the late 1800s. You probably don't know the title. It's, it's, it's an obscure poem. It's called The House of Life. The title isn't that famous, but the first line is. The first line says, look in my face. My name is might have been. Might have been. Might have been. There's actually a uh, Paul Simon song that picks up on this. It says, a bad day is when she lies in bed and thinks of things that might have been. What might have been? There's a fast forward, that was in the late 1800s. Fast forward 100 years, there's a rock song, kind of an obscure rock song, rock and roll song in the 1990s called Nothing Man. And in Nothing Man, the chorus says, isn't it something, Nothing Man? And the singer says, walks on his own with thoughts he can't help thinking. Futures evolve. But in the past, he's slow and sinking. And the killer line in the song says, caught a bolt of lightning. First, the day he let it go. That's might have been. That's, do you ever look in the mirror and say, ah, what's, what might have been in life? What I almost had. So you could say, what other, I, I, jealousy. I want what other people have. Glory days. I want what I used to have. Rush with glory. I want what I almost had. Right? Now, this is why I'm lingering on this point. As Christians, we say, Christ is my satisfaction. Christ is my everything. Jesus is my all in all. Jesus is all I need. Yeah, my life stinks. My life stinks. Why don't, why, don't I, why don't I have what they have? You see, if you start in any sense, you start, you say, if only, if only, if only, if only I had what they have, if only I had what I used to have, if only I had what I almost had, life would be great. But my life stinks. As a Christian, as a believer. And here's another thing. You so see, you fill in the blank with anything. If only I had that, fill in the blank. It's probably different for all of us, but fill in the blank. Here's another one. I'm sure this doesn't apply to anyone in this room or on Zoom. But I, we all know men who would feel this way. If only I had an endless stream of lovers <laughs> at my disposal 24-7 my entire adult life, then life would be great. Whatever you fill in the blank with, Solomon is here screaming at us through the centuries to say, oh, no, it wouldn't. You say, oh, my life would be meaningful. If only I had that, my life would be meaningful. Solomon says, oh, no, it wouldn't be. You say, if only I had that life, would be, I'd be fulfilled. Oh, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Solomon, is so, Solomon isn't just talking to the non-believers saying, you should be disillusioned with your life. He's talking to us. And what he's saying is, that thing that you think 
you wish you had, you say, if only that thing, it will not do for you what you think it will do for you. It will not. So then he says that. And then we say, how does he know? How does he know? Maybe he's just a, you know, maybe he's just some kind of like philosophy professor, like some French philosophy professor all dressed in black, sitting at some cafe, drinking espresso, smoking a cigarette on one of those sticks, like in the movies, saying, oh. but sitting there in some cafe saying, life, she is dark. No. Yeah. So he's just some dark professor saying, oh, he's all dismal and down on life. He's saying, hey, lighten up, right? That seems like, you know, lots of people have said that. But here's the thing. The professor is not just a professor. He is he's not the, just a great professor. He's not the ultimate professor. He's the ultimate adjunct professor. The ad, you know, the adjunct professor is that someone who works during the day and teaches the class at night. Someone has lived it out. And Solomon says there are basically three paths. All of you are on. You're all on three paths to find meaning in life. One of these three, you're either going to live an achievement-based life, a cause-based life, or a pleasure-based life. Those are, you're on one of those three paths. And I, as Solomon, as almost uniquely in all human history, I have reached the end of all three paths. Experientially, I've done it, and I'm here to report back to you. So this construct of these three things, just like a couple other things uh, in this talk today, I've got from Tim Keller. Tim Keller has nine sermons on the book of Ecclesiastes. And when he preached this one, I was actually attending his church in New York City. I remember where I was sitting in the, in the church, in the pew, when I heard him say this. And I said, right away, I said, I know where that is. Geographically, I know where that is. And I had this association in my mind with each of these ways of living life with three different cities in which I have lived. So, no particular order, just in case it helps you remember these three things. Cause-based life, that's D.C., Washington, D.C. We lived in D.C. for six years. Everyone in D.C. is there for a cause. You're here for your cause. You say, my team is in power. we got to stay in power. My team's out of power. We get back to power. If we don't get back in power, the world's going to end. Everyone is there fighting for their cause, fighting for their cause. D.C., and not just elections, not just politics. Every other cause imaginable. Every other cause under the sun. When my wife and I were there, we knew another couple. The woman of that couple worked for the, I think it was called the National Can Association. What do you think their cause was? <laughs> cans. Food. Just cans. Any, cans of any time. Their, their reason for existing was to get people to stop using bottles and instead use more cans. Push the cans. And even she thought, well, that's kind of silly. She said, it's a job, you know, but that, that, that's where they're there. They're, they're there for cans, right? Fighting for their cause, just like everybody else in D.C. Now, in... New York, that's an achievement-based life. They just laugh at all that stuff. Yeah, I can keep all those causes. In D.C., Election Day was like game day. The local news is covering it. Everyone's talking about it. The city's a buzz. It's there. The local universities, the students have watch parties late night to watch the election results. It's like game day. Exciting. New York, when New York says like, you're like, you know, I don't care. Republican, Democrat, how do I trade? How do I play that? You know, my long equities and my short rotate into fixed income, come out of consumer durables, go into the finance sector. Is it good for deal flow, bad for deal flow? Who cares? New York is like that. New York has always been that way. You can keep your causes. So if you come from D.C., you say, don't you care? Don't you care about these causes? And they say, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm long cans and I'm short bottles, whatever. It's fine. I don't know. Whatever. So how do I make money on this? How do I make money? When I was in D.C., I, was, I worked one street over from Constitution Avenue. I'd walk to the Lincoln Memorial at lunch. And you see the presidential helicopter flying over it. And, you know, I think it's called Marine One. You're like, wow, look at that. That's the president. Look at that. That's so cool. Look at that. That's the president. That's so cool. 
When I was in New York, people say, oh, the president's a blankety blank president in town again. Yeah, Fifth Avenue's all gummed up. It's a yeah, blank, blankety blank office. Just, it's not a cause-based city. It's an achievement-based city. Now, the, there's another city that laughs at both of them, and that's LA. Why, why do you guys are both crazy? You're working far too hard. Go to the beach, lighten up, get tanned and relaxed, have a good time. What's the matter with you people? And by the way, it's cold where you live. Why do you live there at all? You should feel good all the time. Um, but that's LA, pleasure-based life, right? So use those three cities if it helps you remember these three points. But let's take each one of these in turn. Actually, I'm not going to take each one. I'm going to take achievement and cause together because the dynamics are relatively the same. Rex, I need you to read again from the screen if you can. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So I accomplished great things, greater than anyone before me. Silver and gold, all kinds of things, right? But also great causes. I built parks, great public works, care about the people. I'm a great king, care about the people, but also maybe become very extremely wealthy. Achievement-based life, cause-based life, all together in one. Now, what can we learn from that? What he is saying is you are all on one of these three paths. You think that no matter which of those three paths you're on, you think the solution in my life to make my life meaningful is to go further down the path I'm on. I've achieved a lot, but I need to achieve more. They asked Rockefeller, famous quote, you probably, many of you have heard. He said, how many millions does it take for you to be satisfied? He said, the next one. I need to go further down the path I'm on. That's what I need. And his basic message in the book is to say the path itself is flawed. It's not that you need to go further down the path you're on. You're on the wrong path. And so you say, well, okay, but what's wrong with achievement and causes? I should achieve things in life, right? I still want to achieve some things, right? And there are lots of good causes to fight for. You know, things that are important, should I just ignore all that? He's, he's saying, no, he's not saying that. He's not saying don't do it at all. He's not saying cut it out. What he's saying is they fail as an organizing principle for life. It fails as a reason for living. And they fail on their own terms. They don't fail on your terms. They don't fail on my terms. They fail on their own terms. And what I mean by that is it's really easy to look at something someone else is living for. And they're living for achievement. They say, you're crazy. You're just stupid. You know, you know the definition of stupid? Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Stupid is what I wouldn't do. Stupid. Cans? You're living for cans? Stupid. I wouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. Who do, you, you gave your life to that. So it's very easy for us to look at what someone else is achieving, the cause someone else is living for, and just think it's stupid. Solomon is not saying, look, when it comes to achievement and causes, you need to be really discerning. You need to use your wisdom because some causes are not worth living for, but other causes are really significant. And achievement, you know, there's some things you can waste your time on, but if you use your wisdom properly, you'll only give your life to the right kind of achievement. No, 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 no. He's not saying that at all. He's saying you can do the best causes, the best achievement, the whole thing, all in its totality. It's all meaningless. 
if you use it as a way to look for meaning in life and base your life on that, not discerning between good and bad is that if you base your life on it, it's all meaningless. Now, why is that? Why do they fail as an organizing principle for life? Death. Death. Basically death. He said, because you can achieve all kinds of things. Inevitably, you're going to die. There's a passage where he said, you're going to hand it off to somebody else. You don't know if that person is wise or a fool. You know, you could do all the estate planning you want, and your the next generation just squander the wealth. Right. Uh, and by the way, that fool, if they are a fool, will be completely forgotten. They'll forget you. And then the fool will come along. The next generation will forget the fool. And that generation that forgot them, they'll be forgotten, too. And what he's leading towards is that ultimately the human race will peter out and it'll all be forgotten. The whole thing is meaningless. And, and this is the key. It's all. Again, this is a point right from Keller. Keller points this out. And he dwells on it a while. He said, he says, the thing you miss if you read it is the word all keeps coming up. So, for example, in chapter one, verse 14, I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless at chasing after wind. So most of us are so caught up in the daily grind of life. You can't step back and look at the whole picture. And Solomon's stepping back and looking at the whole picture. So if I say to you, why do you, why do you work? Well, I have to pay the mortgage. Or why do you pay the mortgage? So I can have a place to sleep. Why do you have, need a place to sleep? So I can be well rested. Why do you need to be well rested? So I can go to work. And it all becomes circular. There's an image straight from, from Keller's sermon. I'll, I'll use it, but he uses this in his sermon. He says, there's an old cartoon where someone is building a pile of rocks in the middle of the road. And on that lot, pile of rocks, they have placed a lantern. And, they, and someone comes up and says, what's the, what's the pile of rocks for? And he says, oh, that's, that's easy. I need a place to put the lantern. Yeah. Okay, what's the lantern for? Well, I got to put a lantern up there so the, the cars don't run into the pile of rocks. That's actually the book of Ecclesiastes in one cartoon. You can say, you might think every one element of your life makes perfect sense. Well, I have to do this and I have to do this. And, I, and if I don't fight for this cause, I see it's helping these other people over here. And Solomon says, well, the whole thing, the whole human race, all together under the sun, it's pointless. The whole thing is pointless. The rocks and the lantern together are pointless. Yeah, each one of them makes sense in isolation, but together the whole thing is just meaningless and pointless if there's no God. So. You say, well, but I still, I still move participating in causes and I still want to achieve some things in life. How do I know that it's gone too far? Very simple test. If I ask you, how do you know your life is worthwhile? How do you know? Look, say, this is not written down anywhere, but in, in tradition, people think that Solomon wrote Song of Songs when he was a young man filled with passion. And then he wrote Proverbs in middle age. When he said, look, I've been around a while. I've learned some things. I'm going to write these down. I can, I, I can teach you a few things about how to live. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was an older man, looking back and saying, what was all that for? <laughs> so it's a book really for people that are older in life, looking back and saying, what, what is it that I look to to say my life has been worthwhile? And if I ask you that, if you, if you fill in the blank with anything, you say, well, you know, I... I really work to plant this church. I build this school. And I've left a legacy with my kids. Anything you're talking about that I achieved or a cause I was part of, you know, the right answer for all of us, right? If I, if I ask as a Christian, the right answer for all of us is obvious. If I ask you, how do you know your life is worthwhile? The right answer is Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. That's it. It's enough. That makes my life worthwhile. I don't need to look at all those other things. And as Christians, we can do that. And I think that there's just, just Christian confusion about this. This particular Christian confusion, confusion about achievement. 
And it's a whole nother talk. And in fact, I gave that talk about a year ago here. And so we won't dwell on it. But the idea is like we as Christians, we don't like fuzzy areas. We like bright line rules. Well, tell me, is it right or wrong? Should I do achievement or not? It's so much easier to live with a bright line rule. Fine, I'll just cut it out. I just won't do it. You know, just, you know, a pause-based life is good. Achievement-based life, that's worldly, that's bad. And, and that's not, that is not what Ecclesiastes teaches. He said, look, you can base your life on either. You can turn either one of them into a little idol and worship that and base your life on it. Neither one of them is what you should be basing your life on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.